Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Good afternoon, everybody. This is the Pine Leonard Podcast. It is Friday, 13 May 2022, and I'm Paul Lefebvre. I'm here with my Ranger buddy, Mike Blackburn, who uh, today we have a special guest. We have uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Mitch Utterback. Uh, he has found his way into our lair, and I'm excited, Mike is excited, about what he has to share with us about the Office of the Strategic Services. Mitch, welcome to the Pinelander. Thank you. First thing I'd like to say, ich bin der Abteilungschef. Ich bin verantwortlich für das Training und den Einsatz dieser Abteilung. I am the detachment commander. I am responsible for the training and employment of this detachment. If you don't know where that's from, you better get that way. <laughs> that's awesome. You better buy the DVD <laughs> yeah. used for a dollar, and you yeah. better watch the movie, and you better memorize every word if you're listening to this podcast. Cause that's this, right. Because that movie should be your real man's version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You should know yeah. every line in that movie. That's right. This group will follow so-and-so to the blue line, and this group will go to the red trail. Kowalski, yeah. break out the gear. Okay, Sarge. I've always wondered in that movie, like, why the hell was Muldoon waiting to the last minute to tell Kowalski to break out the gear? Where's PCIs and PCCs, yeah. man? That and uh, forgive me for not giving you a simple, straight answer as I throw this machine gun on a table. That was awesome. Great. You really believe that, Colonel? Green Beret is just a robot. Nice. Yeah, I don't think enough guys watch that. You know, you get some, like, saucer eyes when you say, hey, have you seen the movie The Green Berets? And they're like, what? That's terrible. Yeah, for uh, some of us, that was a transformative event. As, absolutely. Um, for, you know, very young. And mandatory viewing. It was. It was. I, I saw it in the drive-in when I was seven. Just oh, to date a, yourself there. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> Seven years old, and uh, being a young boy of faith, I still remember the prayer I said that night after we got home from the drive-in. I said, dear, dear God, please let the war in Vietnam last long enough that I can grow up and become a Green Beret and go there and fight. Amen. Awesome. <laughs> and you didn't make it, I don't think. Uh, no, it was, uh, I didn't get to my ward till I was over 40. Uh, hey, so Mitch, uh, I know you to be a historian. Self-proclaimed. Uh, yeah, self-proclaimed historian. But uh, the reason why we have Mitch on the podcast today is Mitch knows a lot about the OSS. He knows a lot about it. Uh, I was able to corner him one day. We were having some coffee. We are talking about the OSS and how awesome it was. And I thought, how awesome it would be to have Mitch on the Pinelander. And uh, so uh, maybe we can just kick this off by saying, you know, what was the OSS? Can we just, is there a, like a, a couple of lines we could just uh, describe it? The OSS, created 75 years ago, is an organization that I would argue uh, could be brought back today in a new version, OSS 2.0. 
probably more needed than ever. And a lot of us veterans and guys still serving in government service, some people think it's, it's still valid. Um, our former acting secretary of defense for 73 days, Chris Miller, said in Las Vegas in October at the Special Forces Association convention that he believes it should be reconstituted and brought back. And if you go to my Instagram, which I'm just myself, Mitchell.Utterback, you'll, you'll see a picture of me and Chris talking about reconstituting the OSS. The OSS was an organization that was uh, needed, needed at the time and accomplished well more than anyone ever thought that it could. It was truly a force multiplier for our country in World War II. And most of us agree in the special forces, the Army Special Forces, that we we trace our military lineage directly back there, directly back to the Office of Strategic Services. Yeah, I know that uh, what's interesting about uh, when we read the history of this uh, that it was really the first uh, clandestine military organization uh, and uh, not only, um, I think, well, it was a forerunner of the CIA. Yes. And in, in, a, in a way, you could say, uh, once the OSS was disbanded uh, by Truman, uh, it became uh, two organizations. Like you said, us, the Special Forces Regiment, and then the, the agency itself. Yeah, not until, as you know, the National Security Act in 1947, what yeah. did the CIA come to be, and not until uh, Colonel Bank... I became the commander of, the, of uh, our 10th Special Forces. Did we, we have Special Forces? Um, so, yeah, there was... Uh, how many times do we have something great yeah, and then put it away? Exactly. Because we think we... Whether it was the OSS or the, uh, the Apollo program. You yeah. know, we can't get to the moon right now. We yeah. haven't been since 72. But we had something and we threw it away and now we're trying to do it again. And the OSS was something like that too. It had uh, magic. It had uh, it had that. Uh, really, you uh, we could say any good unit is uh, will take on the persona of its commander. Yeah. And so uh, maybe the first thing we could do is talk about Wild Bill Donovan, who he was, uh, how instrumental he was in creating this. Obviously, he was his first commander. Yep. He was the visionary of it. What can Truly. we say about him? We can say that he was a New York National Guard Battalion Commander Medal of Honor recipient from World War One. Highly dangerous. That's some serious bona fides right there. Yeah. yeah. Very successful Wall Street attorney, staunch Republican. Um, and to his credit, Franklin President Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, not unlike uh, Lincoln in a, in a certain way, to create a team of rivals. You know, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about Lincoln and his cabinet called Team of Rivals. That's a great read. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt, a Democrat, chose Donovan, a Republican, to become his coordinator of information, to lead an office mm-hmm. to start uh, fusing and synchronizing in- intelligence mm-hmm. coming from all different branches of U.S. government, much to the consternation of the State Department and the FBI. There were stovepipes and rice bowls back then, Um, but but with uh, 
larger-than-life personalities like J. Edgar Hoover didn't yeah. want to didn't want to give up. and uh, and ultimately he kept his rice bowl full. He he did the counterintelligence uh, CONUS stateside, and Donovan and the coordinator of information eventually got it all peeled some of it away from the State Department. Many in many ways they thought that was ungentlemanly to mm. spy on your. Yeah, it was so essentially they were filling a void. Truly. You, you had the FBI, you had the G2 mm-hmm. for the Army, yep. and then there was this other element, like we don't really know what's going on overseas. And there's yeah. a war already begun in Europe. Japan is rattling the saber with us, mm-hmm. already fighting Japan, China, and so we really don't know what's going on. Well, besides uh, Donovan just being an exceptional human being and a war hero, an, an extremely intelligent man. I mean, there was reasons why FDR picked him, right? I mean, it, it was... That's right. Even though he was Republican, I mean, obviously he had his eyes on this guy for some reason. His ability to uh, activate his networks, mm. and that should sound familiar to some people listening. Network development mm. is another reason why FDR sent him on a global tour to mm. find out what's going on, what's cooking in these countries around the world, who are going? Who's going to be our friends? Who's going to be our enemies or our adversaries? And I want you to get in as many countries as possible, and see what they've got going on. He he visited pre-war Germany, even, and uh, he was truly a truly a man that understood the power of exchanging business cards and keeping in touch, and even if it was a little personal note once a year, to maintain the relationship. The the relationship was maintained, and in our in our uh, military service and our post-military service, um, keeping connected to people and staying connected, and uh, is it's very important. Yeah, he. I also, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, I remember he actually something like flew a couple hundred miles behind enemy lines to visit Detachment 101 personally to uh, see what's going on. How how you know that that's that's ballsy. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and uh, you just have uh, Donovan show up in your G base. You know, Quite howdy, General. Hey, <laughs> what's going on here, guys? Just thought I'd uh, come in, yeah, roast a few marshmallows with y'all and chit chat. And uh, I think I think he didn't. He uh, also hit the Normandy Beach at D plus one. Yeah, so definitely a guy that uh, wasn't afraid to get and get some eyes on. Well, when you've yeah. t- when you've taken a Maxim machine gun bullet to the thigh. Yeah. Uh, w- w- the guy has some stones. What else yeah. they got for you? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, uh, but and a guy who knew how to get people. Yes. So he knew how to recruit people, the type of people he needed for this uh, or this uh, other type of unit. Yeah. It just really was, uh, you know, other than anything else that we had at the time, right? I mean, other than gathering intelligence, I mean, was there anything else that, um, like the OSS, I mean, was... There, I'm assuming there was a vision for what this this unit was supposed to achieve, and then it became what it became, which was may have been two different things. His UK connections were were massively helpful. His friends in England, uh, which basically said, "We're gonna we're gonna give you everything so that you can pattern your OSS after our special operations executive," mm-hmm. and. It could be argued that only Donovan was capable of uh, getting that from the Brits. Well, they needed us in the war, too, so at some point that was 
that was probably something they were willing to willing to fork over. But the uh, we can't say enough about how important that choice was that Roosevelt made, and there's some great biographies. Is that there's a big thick biography just called Donovan. If you see it online or in a used yeah. bookstore, it has right. a blue a blue jacket and the word Donovan. It's either in white or yet Donovan, America's master spy or yeah. something like that. Yep. It, it's a great great read. And at first, he led the coordinator of information, and then after the war started by 1942, it uh, it was rebranded as the Office of Strategic Services under the reporting to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. It had a lot of civilian um, members. It uh, it was never truly a military organization out of the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. It was like a re- direct report to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and to Roosevelt, which later on in the 50s, because of that civilian bloodline, partial civilian bloodline, um, and there's people smarter than me that know exactly why it had to be that that the Army Special Forces can't trace its colors and lineage officially directly back to the OSS. Uh, when Aaron, when Colonel Aaron Bank, our founding father, was still alive, um, I knew him when he lived in Southern California, and uh, many of us have heard him say directly. And it's also in his book, his autobiography, from OSS to Green Berets. And I'll try to do my Aaron Bank impression. He said, "I never agreed with the Pentagon when they said that we were descended from the first Special Service Force. We've." We're descended from the OSS and mostly the OGs, the operational groups. So that's, however, um, the fact of the matter is the Pentagon, the Institute of Heraldry in the mid-50s said, okay, Army Special Forces, your, your lineage, we are declaring, will come from the first Special Service Force, the Rangers, and some other units. And look at our mission now, what we do, what we've always done, uh, unconventional warfare, advising, assisting uh, resistance groups behind enemy lines. And then I'll ask you, give me one example where the first special service force did that. It's almost like they were looking for some sort of military unit to tie a lineage to. That's right. And the closest they could get was that joint U.S.-Canadian unit with right. the arrowhead patch and the crossed rifles. But it was a, it, it was a construct. It's, um, I mean, it, it's great to, to be told we're descended from those guys. But uh, tactically, doctrinally, the only thing we share is airborne qualification with those guys. That's true. That was a binational, light infantry, highly trained, uh, conventional unit. Yeah, I often, uh, when people ask me about that, I say uh, the fighting spirit uh, of the regiment comes back, goes all the way back to uh, the Devil's Brigade, uh, the, uh, our, I guess, ranger-type tactics, you know, goes back to the colonial period with the rangers. And then, of course, the OSS is our uh, legacy. So I look at a legacy, a lineage, yeah, you know, like um, but if, if there was such a thing as military DNA, yeah. we'd have a lot more 
Yeah, absolutely. OSS DNA and absolutely. especially OGs. Yes. With a 15 man uh, OG force. Multiple MOS, couple absolutely. of officers. So yeah. Um, so if there was such a thing as military DNA, we would trace we would find OSS DNA in our modern special forces blood. And I'm going to say this. Our first special service force uh Ancestry yeah. is like being told when you were a little kid, if you got a good suntan at the beach, you must be part Cherokee. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. take your DNA test and you got no native blood. Mm. So. Well, and you, and, and you, and, you and I, um, I came in in 1984. Um, but I do remember, um, you know, I came over to SF when, group was expanding yep. they were bringing everybody else on board and, uh, and a lot of the NCOs from various different combat arms uh, units across the army were, were being recruited into SF at that time but I remember during that during the time in SF where there was a I'm not going to say a, a majority opinion but there was a lot of people that just really didn't like the fact that we did UW so I, I'm, I'm wondering if uh, there's always been sort of that element running through the military that's kind of not really liked the mission of SF. Mm. Well, I didn't know General Schwarzkopf, and I wasn't in the first Gulf War, but in, you know, in his own book, I believe he, he said he wasn't a fan mm. of SF. Um, and you, funny thing, speaking of UW, you can't. There's no sexy posters showing SF guys doing UW, but there's lots of sexy videos and, you know, army-produced recruiting stuff that has a guy in an ops corps helmet and OCPs with his sleeves rolled up a couple of times to show his tattoos, and he's got a, a cool rifle, and he's blowing doors, and he's doing cool guy stuff. Yeah. That, that's, that, yeah. that, that's, that, that's you know, sexy. People sign up yeah. for that stuff. Yeah. Um, not, not so much for a fit machine. Showing you, you know, UW. <laughs> Occasionally, there'll be a, a picture of a guy surrounded by hundreds of dudes not of his nationality, and they're talking about something. That's that's as good as the army can get with depicting UW for recruiting and stuff. That's true. Then you had a great story about that, about recruitment. And about, yeah, let's we'll uh, go back to the. Recall. Yeah, we'll go back to the uh, OSS and. Um, but one last thing. I mean, yeah. I, w I went to Menton Day in Canada myself in 1984. The, uh, you know, the celebration of the deactivation of the first special service force uh, in December of 44 yeah. in Menton, France. And I never, I never questioned it. That's what we, that's what everybody said. Mm -hmm. You know, awesome book, cool movie. Um, I'm proud of I'm proud of all of our World War II veterans. Um, and I'll I'll get down off my soapbox and and one last time to with respect to Colonel Bank, if the founding father of the Special Forces said it out loud and wrote it in his book that the Army created that lineage, mm. I believe him. And tactically and operationally... It makes sense. It's, yeah. So, speaking of recruiting, uh, we're close here in Pineland. I can disclose to you that Camp, Camp McCall is... Not, not that far away. <laughs> yeah. That uh, there, there exists a stand of pine trees, and uh, 
overgrown sandy road that's mostly now a washout and there's a bed of pine straw on the forest floor where once stood a building a building that is now its location now lost to history the street that it was on now lost to history the building number now lost to history but in that building in 1943 early 1943 an OSS recruiter from Washington, D.C. held a briefing for men that were interested in that announcement on the company bulletin board that was put up earlier that week that said there will be a, there will be a briefing for men with some expertise in a European language, preferably French, men who have two years of college, men who are parachute qualified or willing to become parachute qualified, and men who are interested in immediate overseas assignment with a high prospect for hazardous duty. That announcement itself, although not verbatim, like I just said it, got a lot of people interested. And that recruiter showed up from D.C. and he never said that I'm from the OSS. He reiterated the, the message on the bulletin board. On some bases around the U.S., there was also a loudspeaker, you know, when we had company loudspeaker announcements. Yeah. Now hear this. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up. That is all. <laughs> they, uh, that briefing was held, and it was held at Camp McCall. And I believe it was uh, William Jade. no, correction, William Colby. William Colby, a paratrooper already, who heard that. Now, Colby might have heard it in at Benning. One of our one of our OSS forefathers, who later rose to national prominence, heard it at McCall. It was done all over the country. It was done at Camp Crowder, Missouri, which was the radio operator in the Morse operator course. It was held at Fort Benning. I believe that's where uh, Jack Singlaub heard it at Benning. It was held at Fort Polk, Louisiana, where a 42-year-old Aaron Bank transportation officer who was sick of working around railroads at Fort Polk, sweating his you-know-what off, he heard it down there. The OSS did a great job of getting recruiters out to post that typed up announcement and then stuck around for the briefing. They did a great job because they got some great men whose names still echo in our minds and will forever in our special forces history. Uh, so that that's one of the greatest early successes aside from Donovan and building the, the organization that he did. They had a really sexy recruiting pitch yeah. that was hitting young men at the right time who didn't want to be in the Airborne Replacement Battalion, who didn't want to be working with trains down at Fort Polk, who knew that they had more to offer, and it worked. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, we were talking about recruitment. That's really why uh, I, I joined the Special Forces. I had, uh, that's the old joke, uh, see the world, mean interesting people, kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that appealed to me. I, I wanted to uh, see the world. I obviously say, saw the movie, mm-hmm. right? Muldoon, right? Gotcha. Going off on the reporters. Yep. Uh, but 
but yeah, was that I, that mystique, and also um, just the unknown. And I think that was an aspect of that too. That recruitment pitch, you don't really know. You want to parachute into the Burmese jungle. Mm-hmm. You want to do that? Oh well, yeah, okay. And I and I know that uh, they had some other uh, elaborate uh, techniques for for recruiting people. Yeah, uh, just I read a few about they would have somebody in a barn blindfolded, and they would you know walk up uh, maybe four flights. You know, of not four flights, but ladders, and eventually be hanging from a bar, and be told to drop. Mm-hmm. And the ones that did, uh, they're like, "Well, this this is probably somebody we could use pretty much anywhere." Yeah, and that it, that was actually <laughs> part of the training. That that was yeah. I that was a, a creation of a, a Fairburn yeah. that uh, really like a kind of a confidence a confidence course. Yeah. To the, the highest degree. The funny thing I heard about that is uh, I heard the guys that didn't drop and that made their way back, uh, they made sta- staff officers. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because we <laughs> like, Hold on a second. That, that doesn't make any sense. And then the other guys that did that are like, well, we'll definitely parachute this guy through the belly of a bomber. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the... Um, the other thing that was really interesting that we were talking about is, uh, I mean, there's so many sexy aspects to the OSS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, they had the R&D, uh, the research analysis, research development. They had uh, uh, morale operations. But really, I wanted to, uh, I think that would be fun to talk about just their special operations. Yes. And that's really, I would say, our DNA. Yes. Where we're at now. And... Uh, you know, I thought it would be fun to talk about uh, perhaps uh, the maybe leading up to D-Day or leading up to Torch mm-hmm. in North Africa, something like that. Maybe a, something you want to elaborate on. But, uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the OSS Special Operations Branch is the, it's, it's where we, we can literally trace our S, Army SF DNA back to. Yeah. Uh, they... They went through, and there, there wasn't a, uh, early on, not so much a distinction between if you were going to go Jedberg or OG, OG operational groups, 15 to 30 man, multiple MOS, uh, multiple officers with yeah. a language and regional orientation. Um, if you were to describe an operational group to somebody now familiar with us and you uh, and you didn't say that you were describing an OG you would say it this way um, tell me what tell me the first thing that comes to mind when i say an army unit with a um, different occupational specialties including weapons and communications and medical with a couple of officers in command with a language ability from first or second generation and a regional orientation and a de- and pending deployment back to the country from which they and their ancestors came from and the language that they speak is spoken in that country. 
lot of people who know a little bit about Army Special Force would say, oh, you're talking about the Green Berets, I think, aren't you? You could be talking about our Lodge Act Green Berets of the late 1950s. And then we would say, close. Let me take you back uh, several more years, and we're talking about the operational groups from the Special Operations Branch of the OSS. And uh, those guys were went through the training. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Colonel Bank, Captain Bank, was uh, originally going to be an OG and then transferred over to become a Jedberg. The, uh, the training pipeline was very, very similar um, right up to, to Milton Hall, I think, when the Jeds got their training with their, their foreign counterparts. But the OGs, uh, we saw, we, they saw a lot of action in uh, Italy. Um, there's, uh, there's one good book so far dedicated solely to the history of the operational groups and it's called Donovan's Devils mm. and the author's name is Albert Lelouchy something like that but just google Donovan's Devils and read about it and if it says you know the story of the OSS operational groups no no uh, interested student of our special operations history should uh, be without a copy of that book. And maybe if Albert listens, yeah. well, hopefully he'll be happy because that was a good contribution to our history. Yeah, and the, so the, uh, if I, now I'm a little hazy on this. So the OGs, operational groups, they were, um, the main difference between the Jedbergs and the OGs were the Jedbergs organized uh, resistance and so normally they would have maybe uh, an American officer, uh, a, an allied officer, maybe French or Dutch or Brit or something like that, and then a radio man. So it's normally Judbridge like a three-man team. That's right. And they coordinated uh, the resistance, uh, you, know, or, you know, operations, brought in supplies, organized like the Maquis, uh, brought in money, demolition, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then the OGs uh, could operate independently or alongside conventional forces or the resistance is that is that correct yeah the the ogs had the ability to advise and assist uh, resistance groups and that's why they uh, were often you know uh, first or second generation italian americans were, were recruited for operations in in italy they they did have more it could be said of a direct action line of effort in their mission statement Whereas, you know, a, a Jedberg op order might not have overly emphasized blow up bridges, blow up rails. And, um, that was a that was higher up on the I would say in the specified tasks to talk in, in a modern op order terminology. OGs had um, conduct direct action against enemy targets or uh, sabotage and you know infrastructure that supports the enemy. That was higher up in the implied tasks of uh, the operational groups. Certainly advise and assist the resistance, bring in supplies to them. That was, if we had to rack and stack, DA higher up for the OGs and uh, not as high for the three-man. What's a three-man yeah. uh, Jedberg team? And the Jedberg teams were indeed three, three men. 
tri-national occasionally. There was only a few tri-national Jedburg teams. Uh, many times it was two guys of from one nationality and, and the, the third. But like you said, there was a radio operator. They were called wireless telegraphers. So the abbreviation for one of the jets was W slash T. He was the WT. What we would now call the 18 Echo, or long ago, just the, the radio man. And uh, there was a commander, an officer as a commander, um, maybe lieutenant, captain, or sometimes major was a commander of a jet team. And uh, always a Frenchman. The Jeds were, were a creation for France. Right. And there was always at least one French officer. Even the French radio operators, initially enlisted men, were given a direct commission before infill so that he would be a French officer. Because that just uh, uh, culturally, de Gaulle knew the, uh, you know, the leader in, in exile he knew that it'd be better if my guys were were all officers with the people at least kind of the same logic with uh wendell fertig uh his uh pfcs and you know whatnot uh you know the unsurrendered army private becomes a field you know, field commissioned lieutenant so that the filipinos will listen to him yeah that type of thing yeah, yeah. hey something else that's interesting about the ogs is uh I think from my reading that they, uh, a, a large part of what they did, a large part of what they did was Southern France. And I know, I remember uh, reading Jack's and Glob's book, and I remember his was like, I think Southern France mm -hmm. as an OG and uh, the exploits he had. But uh, some, so there, if I understand the difference, the, uh, the Jedbrick teams obviously, uh, they parachute into uh, Normandy and, other parts of France prior to D-Day slowed the German uh, reaction so that the you know allies were not driven back into the English Channel, you know, blowing uh, railways, bridges, and, and whatnot. And then the uh, the OGs, I think, if I'm not wrong, you know, they had a large hand in Italy, Yugoslavia, and southern France, something like that. Yep. Yeah. So you may have misspoke. Uh, Jack Singla was not an OG. He was uh, okay. a Jedberg. Okay, yeah. But sorry, that's quite all right. We'll <laughs> I talk. Know you're a J yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk yeah. about him. But the um, no, and there's a there's two, there were sort of two waves of uh, Jedberg infills into France. The ones very close right after D-Day. Eisenhower didn't want anybody going in too soon, if captured, to give up the fact that the big invasion is coming. So Jeds jumped. Um, there was several Jed teams that jumped into the Brittany Peninsula. Uh, period of darkness, 8, 9 June. So the, beach, the beaches were already being uh, landed. Several thousand uh, troops were already... Canadian, British, and American troops are already on the beaches. The Jeds that jumped into the Brittany Peninsula were responsible for initially holding holding back the uh, 30 plus thousand Germans in the Brittany Peninsula that had a pretty straight shot 
towards Normandy. Other jets uh, inland from the Normandy beaches, much further inland than the 101st and the 82nd. They were to hold back the reinforcements, the pa many panzer divisions that were going to be headed in. And they, they cut rails, they blew bridges, and they did, they did require those uh, panzer divisions and mechanized German units to uh, drive. And yeah. the, the vehicle service life is incredibly inhibited when those, those vehicles were on the road. So yeah. they were breaking down like Russian convoys in Ukraine. Yeah. 40 day stalls. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> something like a two, it was like two weeks or something. Instead of like a couple of days, right? It yeah, was there was once, I believe, a, um, a big average done for all the units. And I think six days was came out of the, the average that they were slowed down. But, you know, uh, somebody listening knows the average number of divisions that we were getting ashore after the beachhead, beachhead was secured. But eventually the forces on the at Normandy had enough combat power that they weren't going to get pushed back. And that, in, in great part, was a, uh, attributable to the Jedbergs and the Maquis, the French resistance, yeah. that um, held them back. Ambushed them coming through choke point towns, cut the bridges, kept them, kept them to... Well, eventually the Germans knew that they couldn't drive on roads and live with the close air support aircraft like the P-47s and the Typhoons that were coming over. So they had to drive through smaller towns under the cover of darkness, and that also slowed them down. Yeah, what a huge impact to World War II. Yeah, I'm thinking six days. Is, I mean, my God, who wouldn't like six days? That's you know, right. Yeah. Well, that every day, like you were talking about, you know, it's all been another division. That's right. Yep, yeah. at least. I mean, the... Uh, the the other aspect, uh, when I think of the OSS, is also uh, the uh, torch. Mm -hmm. So the operations in North Africa, gaining that initial foothold, even before D-Day, just kind of that first, uh, I think that was our first uh, uh, touch point with the Third Reich or Vichy France. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right? Just kind of getting a foothold into Fortress Europe proper, if you will. Yep, and the... The, um, to give our, our British counterparts credit, the SOE and the, co and the Royal Marines and the Combined Operations Platoons, those guys did the beach landing surveys. Mm. You know, they, in uh, what we would call collap collapsible kayaks, mm. paddled up, put scout swimmers out, swam up to the beach, took, this, took the gravel samples and the, measured the angles, the slope angles, and then paddled back and paddled back out to your patrol boat or your submarine, and hopefully you made link up out there. Wow. You know, we people think link up is hard in the on land. <laughs> try try link up with a, a, a 1942 the 1940s, no, waterproof, not waterproof technologies. But the uh, so so the uh, first wave of jets flew out of England to parachute in to effect. The, the German response to the Normandy invasion. Right. The second wave, if you could call it that, of Jeds, some of them flew out of North Africa. Aaron Bank uh, infilled nor from North Africa. Mm. Uh, and they jumped in uh, later in the summer 
in anticipation of uh, Operation Dra Dragoon, Dragoon the, yeah. la the, the landings in southern France. And so our, our famous forefathers, uh, Aaron Bank, commander of Team Packard, he came out of, he came out of uh, North Africa and parachuted into southern France. Uh, Jack Singlaub, commander of Team James, yeah. he jumped into the Corrèze Department of France in uh, August of 44, uh, again, ahead of Operation Dragoon. Ryan, there's something like, uh, listen to something like 30 OG uh, teams. I mean, there's quite a number. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was uh, I mean, they were all over France. I'm going to have to look that up. You mean OGs or JEDs? Uh, OGs. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to. Yeah. We'll have to, look that, on some metrics, we'll have but, to look that up in Albert's book. But uh, the interesting thing I, I, I remember about the Jeds, uh, excuse me, Jed uh, OGs, was uh, they could work in concert with a conventional force yep. for screening, for uh, BDA, for whatever. So much. Yeah. And in uh, a way that, uh, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but a lot of the ways that would, we would later see in SOG, mm -hmm. and of course, more immediately in the ODAs, but just that, just a, you know, that other connection, uh, how an ODA can work in conjunction with, and we've done this since uh, Desert Storm, even back to Panama, uh, even further back than that, uh, working in conjunction with a conventional force and with resistance or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, unconventional warfare units, what have you. Uh, well said. Is, yeah. There's a that large uh, mountain yard population in in North Carolina in yeah. the Greensboro area, that that diaspora, that immigrant community, those those good people were our counterparts, mm -hmm. special forces counterparts in in the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and now many of the many of their descendants live here. Uh, an example of how we could have taken better care of our yeah. our indigenous partners, but also uh, if you live in North Carolina, you go through Greensboro and you go see those communities. That's because of um, people that wanted to work with us, and also the tribute to our Vietnam vet veterans that wanted to get them here and give them a new life. Yeah, yeah, we have we haven't always done right, but um, you know a lot of us have done a lot. That, that is an awesome part of our history, and we still have those people that are still with us. So it is awesome to work with them when we can. Yeah, I mean, there's so many there's so many aspects of uh, the OSS. Um, what else could we capture as far as like uh, uh, we talked about France, we talked about Torch a little bit, mm -hmm. and then uh, have you now? What is like your uh, absolute favorite aspect of the OSS? It. Um that's a great, a great question. It is the, the brilliant screening, mm. the brilliant recruiting, yeah. the great screening, yeah. the great training that gave men who were you know, tw from 20 years old to Aaron Bank at 42 mm. years old. Um, much of it borrowed and copied from the Special Operations Executive but we did so much right back in 43, finding the right people and preparing them to be in situations that uh, 
especially three-man teams. A three-man team, there are still books written about those three-man teams. The, their names are still at the tips of our tongues. They rose to uh, accomplish great things for our country. So I guess my favorite thing is about the OSS is the impact that those veterans had on our country and still do. Yeah, tremendous impact. I mean, if you, if you think in terms... Mike, you're going to say, go ahead. I'm going to go off well, on a tangent here. Go no, I'm, I mean, uh, I'm just there's a couple of things that are just kind of floating around in my mind. One is um, we, we commonly refer to that generation as the, you know, the greatest generation. Uh, those kids that were reared during the Great Depression, yeah. um, you know, through tough times, um, didn't have a lot. Uh, and these, this is the kind of steel that we had in, in, in American youth yeah. that really I thought – really contributed to the fact that the OSS was as successful as it was. Mm-hmm. And those type of people that kind of knew how to find guys with grit and, yes. the, and then the right kind of people. Yeah. And uh, you were talking earlier about a need for an OSS 2.0. So I'm, my, my question is, the OSS wasn't, wasn't really a military organization. It was kind of a quasi-military That's organization. Right. So I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I would just love to like, you know, your thoughts, some, some of these other people's thoughts, uh, you know, Secretary, you know, Miller's thoughts on what a OSS 2.0 would look like. Would it still be sort of a quasi-military organization? Is, is the way it was organized, is that some of its magic? Yes. Um, and then do we have, you know, are we still breeding the kind of folks in this country that could occupy uh, and perform the kind of mission that we would really need this unit to do? I would say yes to the, the, that we still have them. We have so many more millions of people in our country. The percentage is smaller. Those people exist in a smaller percentage just mathematically. But I do believe through my, my uh, exposure to them, still in some capacities, that they still exist. Mm-hmm. The, the th- we, we need a threat like we had back then to focus our attention and help us find the iron in our spines mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, we haven't had a threat since uh, a two-war, f- uh, two-theater front. You know, the term existential threat is a popular term in the news and, and it's kind politics. Of thrown, kind of just thrown around willy-nilly today. It, it is a throwaway term. It's as a, it's almost as useless as the adjective amazing, because everything is amazing now. But we need that kind of threat to find to those, and those people will, will be out there. It would also require an ability, which would be most difficult to look past somebody's political ideology and their belief systems because there were communists in the OSS. There were what we would consider liberal professors. There were nerd scientists. There were, there were type B's, type A's. There were meat eaters. There were leaf eaters. And there were everything in between. But Donovan and his people... Had enough, had enough foresight, I guess, to know that you know we've got to 
We've got to hire. We've got to get union organizers. We've got to get communist professors, union organizers. We have to get uh, war veterans and scientists. It was an, teachers, yeah. um, men, women, everything. And even... Was, was the threat the glue that, that I believe, yes. bound them? I believe, yes, it was, Mike. The threat. The threat from Germany, the threat from Japan, and uh, a, a time when everybody was asked to pitch in. So if, uh, you know, there were a lot of a lot of suicides back in the 40s. If you were 4F, if you were un- ineligible for military service, that was the, the old suicide threat. It's not well discussed or thought about now, but, you know, we have, we're concerned about our veteran suicides now more than we ever have been, sadly. But back then, the 4F suicide was a wave, that yeah. you, you, you weren't eligible to go and people were killing themselves. So yeah. we, uh, but everybody, everybody wanted to help. And uh, you know, uh, one of my big beefs after 9-11 was when President Bush said, in so many words, act like nothing's happening, go ahead and go shopping. I remember that. Go. That's like a distillation of what he said, but go shopping, live your lives, you know. And I, you know, I thought, wait, we're not going to grow, start growing victory gardens. We're not going to have scrap metal drives. We're not going to turn in aluminum to make bombers. We basically got told after 9-11, let the tiny percentage of our population deal with this. And the rest of you try to live your lives like nothing happened. When back then it was, we're all in. There's, here's your family ration book. Uh, Walt Disney crushed, you know, beat up his cast iron statues of Bambi and then turned, sent them off for scrap metal. <clears throat> the OSS film, I think the film photographic unit, the OSS filmed that. There's an aspect that you have, sorry to interrupt you. Please. But uh, just the idea of everybody working together on this team. I mean, you had Disney making films for the OSS. You had uh, cartoons that Disney made for the OSS. Yeah. You had, uh, I think, uh, uh, some actors that were part of the OSS, uh, people that had money, people mm-hmm. that are professors, playwrights, whatever their talent was. Yes. They were employed. Yes. So you had the, the best, the brightest, skilled people all on the same sheet of music. Right to crush tyranny and that's awesome yeah so there's it's like there's no virtue for uh like necessity you know uh, necessity is a mother of invention and so they created this awesome organization uh with everybody pitching in uh to deal a death blow to tyranny that's awesome there you have it paul you know uh john ford um who filmed the midway attack for the movie he was, uh, he was also in a lieutenant colonel in the OSS, the film photographic unit. He was, Donovan had an information operations branch right. to do the photos and to do the film. And these guys, they went off to do it because they're, they were needed. And I'm going to ask a alternate reality. So you remember when Francis Ford Coppola went off to make movies you know, yeah. during the GWAT? No, he didn't. That's right. Remember when yeah. Quentin Tarantino made those great movies about, you know, um, the liberation of Mosul? Yeah. And, no. Not. not. Yeah. 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 
Remember when Brad Pitt, um, you know, got his Green Beret at Fort Bragg, and uh, oh my God. and uh, when Matt Damon, you know, uh, became a Navy SEAL? Yeah. No, of course you don't remember that. Yeah. But that was common. That was common back in World War II. Uh, a lot of these you know, famous actors and politicians, all these people served. Sterling Hayden was in the OSS uh, Maritime Unit, and he became a you know, big-time actor. And uh, Mo Berg, the baseball player. My, my, uh, Marlene Dietrich. Uh, amazing. Yeah, so uh, it's a different time. So we could sit around for an entire podcast yeah. and just go through, remember what it used to be like before yeah. we were born? And remember what it... But we still have... But, you know, you you, uh, you make me... Uh, I mean, it's optimistic. Well, there's always young men, I guess, that are going to step up yeah. and want adventure. And women, too. Uh, yeah. And women, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I'm just saying, I mean, I don't think we've lost our... Yeah. our uh, Love of adventure, no. a love of excitement, a love of a challenge. That's in right. fact, the uh, in the SI, I believe uh, the women were especially skilled uh, at uh, you know uh, getting where they needed to be as secretaries or whatever, and then especially the ones who were uh, easy on the eyes, very uh, you know could, could really get the info. You know what I mean? Yeah, really it put the stink on on the enemy. It's it's a uh, we see it. Whatever your skills, that's the idea. Is whatever skills you had, you used it because you were America. Mm-hmm. That's why I love. That's what I love about OSS. It's distinctively now. Of course, we hijacked some good stuff from the Brits. We did the same thing with the unit, right? right? Certainly. Uh, you know, uh, well, there's no point reinventing the wheel. I mean, if something's working, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I I have a phrase: the uh, wheel's already round. We're not going to add 361 degrees to a circle. It's that's right. it's there. That's true. But that's, uh, I mean, yeah, like you said, there's so many things we could talk about uh, as far as, uh, you know, recruitment, uh, operational mm-hmm. patterns. Uh, there, But, I mean, I really want to make sure people heard that just the, uh, at the end of the day, in the last analysis, if there was no OSS, we, we might not have won the war. I could go that far. You know, we, I don't know, is that a stretch? Well, it, that that a might stretch? be a stretch, but I will tell you this, it would have been way different it might have been different and it may have been longer but the, they might have the, might, cemet- might the have cemeteries failed. in france would be much bigger yes yeah the u.s cool. cemetery in in um and in france especially near the ones near north they would have been much much larger and fuller than they were yeah. and the um we wouldn't we wouldn't have uh you know, great men like uh, Jack Singlaub, who rose to two-star general. One of the, arguably in history, one of, in uh, the 20th century's few generals who was known for speaking truth to power and uh, putting candor right up front. He's the general that uh, was asked by Jimmy Carter, well, told it's time for you to retire, or the Pentagon said, You've two times publicly answered uh, the question that you think it's a bad idea that President Carter is going to pull the troops out of South Korea. And he said, yeah, it's a bad idea. Although the bosses, his bosses at the Pentagon said, can you just not answer that question or find a different way to word it? To which he said, basically said, no, that's simple question, simple answer. But he was a Jed Burke. He started out as a Jed. And... Uh, his autobiography, 
Great book, too. Hazardous Duty. The one word that jumps out of that book at you as integrity. Always doing the right thing, no matter what it meant for his career, which ended, you know, two stars pretty damn good. Three wars, two-star general, but he probably could have gone much further. Yeah. And, uh, uh, SOG, uh, director, let's see, uh, CIA. Uh, let's see, I think he was in Manchuria as a communist rogue running it. I mean, yeah. he, had, he had that career that was just, uh, I mean, I, I wanted to say this earlier, that the OSS was like the Jason Bourne club of World War II, right? Yeah. And yeah. it was like a Jason Bourne thing. Uh, before there was Jason Bournes, but he really had that that life, you know, that spanned all of that, like uh, even beyond bank. Yeah. You know? Yep. He and Jed Jedberg, and then uh, stuck stuck around in in China at the beginning of the CIA, arguably yeah. a plank holder. Yeah. And uh, stayed in Manchuria. And. I believe the term sheep dipped is familiar to some of the listeners where you're you're taken from one branch of government service and and placed in another. Um, mm. He was sheep dipped a few times back and forth and uh, had his had his conventional command in Korea at a very famous um, battle called Outpost Harry. Um, but the lodge, the best choice to lead Mac V. Sog yeah. was a guy that if we're going to do cross-border special operations and small teams working in with indigenous forces, do we have any colonels that hmm, have some experience doing this already? And because it's Mac Vsog, is there anybody with some serious CIA credentials? Jack Singlob yeah. was the only guy. Yeah. And one, one thing I'm talking about him. He even pushed bundles in uh, North Korea. Mm-hmm. This wild man. He rode a, a Fulton Fulton extraction rig in '67 before he approved it for use for his men. Yeah. So the commander, the colonel, yeah. he rode the Fulton system in '67 before he said, "Okay, well, we're going to approve this as an extraction method from, yeah, from my command." You always hear the adage, "You don't ask your men to do something you're not prepared to do," and he really put his money where his mouth was, yeah, or his butt. The ultimate win, right. dummy. <laughs> He did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One heck of a mile American. And you were privileged to know him personally. That's very, awesome. Very privileged and uh, very, very personally uh, without um, being too too personal. But I was able to meet him in the last couple years of his life. Mm. And because I have come to realize that our there are now no surviving American Jedburg veterans. There's one in England, Fred Bailey who was the uh, WT on Team Citron. But that's it. There's one jet alive now. Of the th- of the almost 300 jets that were trained and deployed, there's only one left, Fred Bailey in England. But uh, Jack Singlaub, Major General Retired John K. Singlaub, was the last surviving American Jetberg um, until um, earlier this year when he wow. died at age 100, and, about 100 and a half. But I was privileged to meet to meet him, knowing that um, our elderly veterans and older elderly people in general are losing friends much faster than they're making them. And if there's no, I don't think anybody keeps tracks of making new friends and friends dying off. But as you get older, they're dying off much faster than you are able to make them. So 
I've dedicated part of my life to making friends with some of our oldest veterans and spending time with them and reminding them that even if you're a hundred, we still know what you did and there are guys like me and that still appreciate it. So I was able to visit him often at his home and sit with him and go through his books together and keep him updated on what's happening in Pineland and what's going on with the Special Forces Regiment and just to uh, tell him every time I visited him that I visit you because you you are my, not to be corny, but when you're talking to an old person, that's not corny when you say, you're one of my, you're one of my mentors, you're of one of my role models, you are my special forces grandfather, yeah. and uh, we exist today because of yeah. the country that you gave us. And they like hearing that stuff, yeah. and it, it matters to them. His name is definitely up there with uh, Volkman, Bank, yeah. uh, Fertig, absolutely up there with the great yeah. ones. I had a very unique, uh, you know, there's guys, uh, uh, Will Irwin, who wrote the book, The Jedbergs. Right. You know, he was a project officer for a reunion in the, I believe, the 80s. He, he was able to meet over 40 Jeds and wrote a great book, Will Irwin's book, The Jedbergs. That's a that's a book you got to read if you want to become a self-proclaimed OSS subject matter expert. I believe there's a, there's one uh, by uh, Beaven. Uh, I yeah. think it's uh, Colin Beaven. Colin Beaven is a guy who um, who I read. You know, he wrote a book, but Will Irwin Will Irwin is a retired Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel. Right. So buy Will Irwin's book before yeah. you buy Colin Beaven's book. Right. Um, Absolutely. I read, so uh, Colin Beaven interviewed uh, Jack Singlob, and I read the letter, the thank you letter mm. that Beaven wrote to Singlob. And it said something like, even though we are of vastly different political beliefs, oh, no. I still thank you for welcoming me, welcoming me into your home and providing me such, so many hours of interview. Mm. So, I don't know Beaven, but I do know that Jack Singlob was a staunch patriotic American who hated communism and well into the later years of his life was doing everything he could to defeat it around yeah. the world. I'm not saying, Colin, if you're listening, that you're a, a commie, yeah. but um, we hear you. if you self-identify as being the <laughs> politically polar opposite of Jack Singlob, it yeah. says a lot about... Anyway. That's why you should buy Will Irwin's book. Yeah. Well, it's just a weird way to start a letter, first of all. Yeah, yeah. front page of it. I don't think uh, Irwin's book is as much tread as Operation Jedberg by Beaven either. So that's that's uh, sad, but maybe we can yeah. we can turn that Let's around. Let's do it. Hey, Will Irwin's a member of the uh, SF Association also, yeah. the uh, Western North Carolina chapter. I so think. you you uh, mentioned a couple of books here. So we just mentioned Will Irwin's book. Uh, we also talked about Donovan's Devils. By Albert Lelouchy. Right. Uh, is there any... Uh, as the, we're, the third as one I would recommend is called uh, OSS Special Operations in China. Right. And, and that, then, you, yeah. And that was the, that's the third one. And I've... Uh, you uh, also mentioned OSS to Green Berets by Aaron Bank. Aaron Bank. Very yep. seminal work. You know, Very good. Yeah. Hazardous Duty by uh, Jack Singlob. Jack Simlog, uh, Singlob's uh, yep. autobiographical. Yeah, and that's his whole um, military history. And it would it could be argued... He was more of a conventional officer than a special operations guy. And, you know, he never, he was awarded his Green Beret, you know, many years later and just a few years ago. 
because he didn't he didn't serve in the army special forces, but because he was a Jedburg, um, it was uh, retroactively awarded to him. Mac V. Sog commander, so he commanded a special operations unit, and he was a Jed. So somewhere, somebody at the Pentagon saw fit, thankfully, or USASOC, yeah. to uh, retro. He earned that. Yeah. 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 yeah he you know, and it's a, there's a, in his home was a beautifully um, shadow boxed mm. Green Beret with, you know, two general officer stars on it and his orders, mm. his, uh, his Green Beret orders. But he, Hey, Mitch, yeah. we covered a lot of ground. I just wanted to uh, just give you an opportunity to give a parting shot on anything we went over. I mean, we, you covered, I, I mean, I just wanted to say this also is, uh, uh, I know you to be a very intelligent man, a very well-read man, but no doubt, I think that you are a better man for having spent time with these heroes of ours, these mentors of ours. And uh, also for reading, uh, we know you, they say you, uh, you read to lead. I think, uh, a lot of guys aren't reading enough. And they, they don't, they're really missing out on all those gems. Uh, you know, you need to read, uh, read our history to, uh, to appreciate it and to understand it. Uh, and then you can, of course, uh, develop, a th- I call it a theoretical experience. So that when you're uh, placed in a similar type of instance, you can react accordingly. And then why not have that all, all that history to use as a tool? Right on. I am... Um... I would like the uh, young men and the few women that are going to be going through training, special forces training, because uh, I didn't know enough about my OSS background when I was a young man going through. Um, but later in life, I, I, I dedicated myself to learn about it. But now, uh, there's a, we've talked about a few books. Please read those books. And there's, you can watch OSS training videos, the black and white videos on YouTube. And you can, awesome. you can see the same training videos that they saw that show you how to cut rail so you can derail and how far away your cuts have to be to get that train off the tracks. Uh, so much of what we are asking our young men and women to do in the Q course now, uh, the, the guys did it uh, in 1943 and 44. And then that training POI was passed on to Mac V. Sog and... The guys of the SF babies of the 80s, like myself, learned it from those Vietnam vets, and guys are learning it. Men and women are learning it now. So They just got to put the phone down long enough to do that. Yeah, there's, there's still books. <laughs> still books. books. But I'm fortunate yeah. to have known personally Aaron Bank. I was, his, I was Mrs. Bank's casualty assistance officer when he died. I was very grateful to read Will Irwin's book, and at the end, read about where are they now? And Bob Kehoe, the wireless the telegrapher, the radio operator on Team Frederick, lived six miles from my house, and he was still alive. So I visited him often for the last year of his life. And then I got to know uh, Jack Singlob, too. And I knew Kehoe and Singlob when they were both alive for a little while, and I was able to be a courier and go-between and pass messages back and forth. So my life, Paul, as you said, it has been enriched through my uh, personal relationship with those great men. And I encourage anybody. There are, there are great Americans around us. Uh, somebody, who's, somebody who has that ball cap that says Vietnam vet and it has a, an arrowhead with a yellow dagger and three lightning bolts in it, please go talk to that man. 
and spend a little time. And if he's grocery shopping and there's a coffee shop in that grocery store, sit, offer to buy him a coffee and then get to know him. Your life will be enriched as yeah. a result. Indeed it will. Mine certainly has been. And uh, we hope you've been enriched in a humble way Absolutely. by listening to us talk this afternoon. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Colonel. Appreciate you coming Thanks, on the Paul. podcast. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. Uh, awesome time. Uh, guys, I hope you got a lot out of that. We mentioned a lot of books. Uh, yeah, read and know our history. There's so much there to know. Uh, so, Mitch, uh, appreciate you coming on. Godspeed to you and all your future endeavors. Thanks. And uh, I think you have a new alternative for Viva La Pineland. Would you care to share that as we close? No longer. Is it Viva La Pineland, an artifact from the mid-1980s when everything cool going on in SF was in Central America? Pineland now, we want to say, glory to Pineland, glory to the resistance. Right on. Glory to Pineland, glory to the resistance. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander podcast. And if you enjoy our content and unique perspective, we hope you'll check out our sponsors. Blacksmith Publishing has been serving the warrior class since 2013. Blacksmith Publishing has great titles written by warriors for warriors. And if you're looking for a great reference book on land navigation or small unit tactics, or perhaps you just want to unwind in the G-Base and read a great novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at blacksmithpublishing.com. If you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, then head on over to the general store located at pinelander1776.com. Great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, and everything else. Until our next time, remember to keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. Glory to Pineland. Glory to the resistance. And glory to the resistance.